Welcome back to the podcast, uh, Nathan Endicott. You are here for episode 339. Then you made a trip to Alaska, and now just feels right to have you back on again. Thanks for being on here. Yeah. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Excited to see you. We had we had some fun adventures here not too long ago. So Yeah. That's one of the things I like about having people on more than once. Once you get to know them, you can kind of you know more about them. So you know what questions you can ask to kind of lob something into their wheelhouse. And it's uh, you get on the same frame of mind and you probably know uh, how to better answer the questions I throw at you. So it's always fun to have people on again. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun uh, when you were up here. Um, just uh, get to know you and your wife. And it's, uh, I, I hate the word authentic, but um, yeah, you really don't seem like a person who's out there to get or leverage experiences um, to elevate your your name. Um how do you think authenticity plays in the outdoor realm? Good question. Uh, how does it? How does authenticity play in the outdoor realm? Well, I mean, some folks are not super authentic, but yet they can appear authentic. Um, there's just all the combinations of that, uh, you know, statement. And you could be super authentic and not come across as authentic out there. It's just every variable um, of that sort. So. I don't know. I, for myself, I could easily go without um, any sort of social media platform, but I feel like I'd miss out on being able to connect with people that I might like. And you're an example of one of those people. So it's like, well, it's worth it that I have this device that has the capability to connect with people all over the world or wherever. And, um, and again, you know, I'm mostly about experiences. I, I mentioned to you briefly, but uh, it's always a black tail story, but I don't like to call or really help my odds out there hunting black tail. I kind of like to just struggle. And if I struggle hard enough, I get one. <laughs> and so it just, it feels right. It feels better for me. And, um, I feel more of a sense of reward. So that's, that's kind of maybe like my method in life is work real hard and good things will happen if you work hard enough. Yeah, that was one of the things I picked up after spending some time. Like there are people who are good podcast guests, then you get them away from the the microphone or the the TV and they can change up a little bit. Um, but it seems like you kind of, you have other priorities in your life where you've set up habits in your life that are conducive to hunting. Hunting isn't like your 100% identity. So when you were like going out into the woods to just go out and see th stuff, it seemed like you were just going out to see stuff out of the enjoyment of that rather than I'm going to go out and get some content or I'm going to do some scouting for later. So it's like, I really en actually enjoy this. And so it's not an off season training for the big hunt. It's actually, I enjoy right now. I'm not counting down the days to the, uh, to the opening day of the hunt. Um, have you always been like that? Uh, yeah. Yep. I would be doing this whether or not I had a camera in my hand or, or a device to share something to later. Um, yeah. And again, I think I've told you before is that, uh, I, I have just tons and tons of old footage that I've never done anything with. And it was just for my own self enjoyment. So yeah, kind of the same thing is this, it's about the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to live life to the full. Um, 
And then sharing gets one piece of it because I want to promote and encourage people to do what I do and where I find joy and satisfaction in life. So that's that's kind of the other piece of too why I have it. Yeah, I think it's it's fun to be able to enjoy that and also just the in shape type thing, just getting out in oh. the woods and, and hiking around so you're not starting to get in shape in July and then trying to, you know, get rid of bad eating or sleep habits and hoping that on August first, at least up here, that's the blacktail opener up here. Um you just got to be ready by August 1st. It's nice to just stay ready. That way you can be in so much better shape by the time August rolls around. So it doesn't have to suck. Like it sucks, but because you've improved so much, like you're, it's not nearly as bad and you can enjoy the experience a lot better. You are probably more apt to stay out longer because you're in shape and feel more good. Yeah. I talked about confidence in the woods last time. Um, what's the, what's your favorite part of, of being out in the woods this time of year? Uh, favorite part about this time of year is it's still right before mosquitoes get bad. And, and then, yes, of course, it's like, I, I stayed in shape during the winter, but right now is the time to really get the miles in, um, in the woods. Cause like as a runner, I can run a lot of miles, but it doesn't directly transfer to putting a pack on and having weight on your back. And so right now is the blend where it's like a light load. I'm still wearing a pack, still hauling weight and I'm putting in the uphill miles to really get my body ready for it. Um, because yeah, you don't want to a be trashed and not be able to hunt or hunt hard or just be in a tent because you're just totally gassed or, or you just can't make it up the hill. You know, you don't want those. And also you don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Like I've experienced a lot of injuries in my life because of doing maybe too much. And so there's the balance, but, um, but yeah, you don't want to get hurt when you're out there carrying a heavy load. Um, I've taken people hunting before blacktail and, uh, one time a guy tripped and fell and like blew up his knee. Mm. And so I had, I had to, it was this ACL, I believe he tore. So I had to build a trail, cut it in to the side slope, like with my feet, just slamming my feet in this and to build kind of a trail. And he had a stick and it took like four hours to Ooh. get him out. Cause it was up on a really steep side slope. It, it's basically like you're up on your mountain and you got to make it down to the coastline. And that's, that's the equivalent of what we had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, whew. so yeah, you, you do this prep this time of year, so you don't have to be in that bad situation. And, and you hope too, that your hunting buddies and, um, other people that you're going to go out with, you have that same level of confidence in that they could do that too. Yeah. One of the biggest transitions, uh, from working out, maybe doing squats or doing lunges or running or whatnot is just the angles that your hips and knees and, and ankles are in when you're up on the mountain because you're stepping down, but it's not a perfectly measured calculated step. It's not, you know, like stairs or anything like that. And that's always one of the biggest things when people come up here, it's just how slick it is. And those stabilizers, if you, you do lose your foot a little bit, then that, that, that other hip is just cinch down to try to have some sort of stability or your knee or your ankle, like all that stuff is just, it's worked so much. And that's getting out when it's slick and with the weight on your back and getting up and in that sort of terrain is, is so huge. You can do the Stairmaster all you want and that, that will help. It's way better than nothing. Same thing with running, get the lungs going, but still there's something to that. Getting used to that footing, uh, is, yeah. is really, really important. Yeah, no, I, Definitely agree. And, and you know, that firsthand. Um, so, uh, the only thing I would say that could help with stabilization is those, um, those half dome sort of, uh, balls 
that are inflated and you can kind of balance on it. Mm -hmm. But still, I mean, that's like, it kind of feels like a joke because when, (laughs) when you're up on the mountain and you step on a slick stick and you go sliding two or three feet and you catch, and then you're like mid catch, do you collapse or do you (laughs) stay on your feet? Like it's always a gamble, but, um, but yeah, like, I guess when you're in shape for that and you're experienced with that, you don't even think about it. But if you took somebody unexperienced, gosh, I sure hope that they come prepared with their knees. Yeah. <laughs> it could be brutal on the knees. Yeah. So. Sometimes trying to save it is the worst thing you can do. There are a couple of times I've been hiking where you just, like, you start to go and just roll with it into the berry bush and just, <laughs> my wife sometimes like, what are you doing? Like I just went with it. I didn't try to fight it. I just went and I knew they had these nice bushes and now I got to get out of them. But yeah, sometimes it's when you save it that the uh, things get a little bit, uh, a little bit hairy. Have you ever uh, slipped and fallen and thought, "Oh my gosh!" That's not good. But then, uh, then you kind of check everything and you're all right. Uh, yes, and I've also had it where I check and everything's not all right. <laughs> what was uh, that one? So in 2018, I was. Uh, out, it was one of those days where it had snowed, but then turned to rain. So it's like 34 degrees and rainy and just pouring rain. And I had a buck that I got up from its bed and it was with a doe and it was chasing the doe. And I just kept pursuing, kept pursuing. And so I'm soaking wet. It's probably 3 PM. I shoot the buck and I was like hyperthermic. And so uh, a lot of energy was expelled being hypothermic. So I started running around and getting kind of back at, like I was not super conscious and even working on the deer would kind of stall out a little bit and be like, what what's going on? Like stand up, move around a little bit, keep working on the deer. So I get on my back. So that's how I started the pack out. And then I had to pack quite a ways and eventually hit a trail. And it was in the transition zone between snow and slush. And so the trail was pretty slick. It was in a place where it cuts into a Creek ravine where it was rocky and a little bit colder so it kind of was more icy than than slush hit a rock wrong with my boot slip come down and i had the full buck on my back both kneecaps hit at the same time yep and so like if you've ever like rollerbladed or skateboarded or anything like that and you hit your knees hard on a hard surface it's that ache you're you're just rubbing your knees like oh you know that hurt and that pain that you get it usually goes away. You wait like five minutes and then that, that intense ache goes away. Well, the left knee didn't ah. <laughs> and the right knee got better. And so anyway, so I hike out long story short is I ended up breaking a piece of my kneecap and I couldn't go downhill very good for the last like three and a half years, had a cortisone shot to get through uh, one of my like once in a lifetime hunts. I drew an elk tag, got through that hunt with a shot, Sure enough, the pain and swelling came back in the kneecap. It just wasn't going to heal right. And I didn't want to do surgery. And that was like the only option. So I did last May. So I'm a year out from surgery on my kneecap. They removed a piece of bone and I'm feeling good. Like I ran today and this is the first time I've run without pain since. So this surgery took about eight months to fully recover, you know, not limp. And, um, I'm back to running and it's like, it feels like I, you know, uh, was like resurrected from the dead. <laughs> I thought I basically, my body was dead to me if I can't run. And, mm. um, I just kind of accepted maybe I have to limp downhill for the rest of my life or walk back. I walk backwards or side step, but it's coming back. And 
So that's all, that's all good. Body can heal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Treat it right. And it, uh, can be so, so resilient. I've had a couple falls where there was one, it was last, uh, November and there was a little Creek. It was about 37 degrees and it just stopped raining. So I was really excited for that. And there's a tiny little Creek, like four feet wide and six inches deep at most. And so I go to just kind of step on one of the rocks that's in there and then step over. No big deal whatsoever. But like time and gravity accelerated. As soon as my boot hit that rock, like I just slipped so quickly and then fell and I fell sideways. So, I mean, six inches of water is nothing. But by falling sideways, water just rushed uh, in my jacket, down my pants, and I got up, splashed really quick. And then I'd hit my knee just like, you know, not as bad as yours, but you feel that that the kneecap is just pulsing and then you don't want to yell. You can't cuss. And so you just kind of letting air out and there's just, but you can't make any sort of noise. And then you kind of take stock and like, okay, my knee, my knee, you know, for a second, it's like, Oh, it's dislocated, broke off. Like, okay, it's still here. It's okay. I can move it. It hurts. All right. Now it's 37 degrees and I'm wet. So, um, when you've been cold like that before, especially in rain, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska, it's, that can be the thing that really messes people up because they're not used to being in that pre-hypothermic mode. And once you've been there before, it doesn't mean that you're immune, but it means that you can kind of recognize what we need to do here. And so now I was wet. So it doesn't mean that I have to go. I just, I'm not going to be able to sit. I'm going to have to walk very, very slow. I'm going to have to keep the blood going and I can still hunt for a little bit. But if I sit down and try to glass or anything like that, then the heat's going to be sucked from me and I'm, I'm, I could potentially be in, in, in some sort of trouble. Um, but yeah, once, once, once you start to feel that cold and you can recognize it, you can stay a little bit more focused. Um, you don't want to be in that situation, but having that experience, I think is huge for people who you know, are going to be out there more and more. Um, those people who aren't used to that are used to just waiting out maybe a thunderstorm where it gets cold a little bit. Um, or there's a, there's snow overnight, but it's going to, when I was in Wyoming last year or two years ago, it snowed one day, but then the sun comes out and you can just feel the sun in your face and it feels warmer and the snow melts. But once you're wet on a hunt, Pacific Northwest, Alaska, it sticks with you. Yeah. You got to stay moving. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing to be careful about and conscious of. Um, I don't know. It's like one of those things where how far is too far. You, you don't really know that boundary. And for a lot of us that just like to keep going or you don't necessarily think anything bad could happen until it's maybe, you know, it is too, too long or you waited too, you know, it went too far for yourself. Yeah. And yeah, I would say that was probably, Yeah. So yeah, you played it safe. Like you got to keep moving. You can't sit down and obviously, you know, sit anywhere and you'd be uncomfortable. So you wouldn't necessarily want to do that, Mm -hmm. but it's like, you know, what if you had a buck down and now you had to sit, that's where I was at. And, and I'm not, it's like, I'm relatively intelligent, but not when it comes (laughs) to like taking care of yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I don't listen to my body cues very good. And that's what it takes to be like a good distance runner and I was a good distance runner. It took kind of like ignoring some of those things mm. that your body is saying, Hey, this feels like it's too much. You have to get used to ignoring it. So it is a little scary. And only now that I'm a dad and have kids, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't scary until I have, you know, respond, real responsibilities yeah. that 
like it's it's irresponsible and negligent to think that i could just you know not pay attention to things like that so yeah that's that's something i've never really you know when talking telling that story i've never really thought about it too from the from the perspective of hypothermia mm-hmm. and having it be maybe too much too far well that, that's an interesting thing too because when hypothermia, when your body is hypothermic, it's pulling in blood from the extremities. And so if you're kind of kneeling down and you're working with your hands, your hands are going to be warm from the blood, your brain is working and everything, but you might go to stand up and like the body's been pulling all that blood and all that warmth from your legs. And so if you can't feel your ankles when you're trying to walk, you can't feel your, your feet, that makes it really difficult to try to get around. Um, I've had a couple of times when you just you're walking around in snow and your feet, you just can't feel your feet. They're just these clubs and you keep walking, you know, yeah. it's going to be fine, but yeah, it's that kind of that misery and there's expected misery and then there's being stupid with it. But I think that's gauging where you're at, how close are you to the truck? Um, yeah. <laughs> two years ago, a buddy of mine, we were walking in this muskeg and, uh, we'd split up and he stepped in a spot that, sometimes you'll sink down into your hip or knee, but he went like nipples deep and he had to put his rifle down and kind of use that to kind of help climb out of it. Uh, and he texted me, he said, yeah, I just, I just sank to the nipples. I was like, dude, you all right. You want to oh, meet no. me at the truck? He said, no, I'll be fine. I'll just keep walking. And he's a, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a commercial fisherman. Uh, so, yeah. you know, he's, he is rugged, but yeah, he just, he kind of knows he'd, he'd figure stuff out if, if thing was, if it was a problem, then he'd, he'd go back to the truck. But, um, yeah, you kind of laugh at it, but at the same time, that could be one of those things where, you know, I, I didn't think of anything of it. And then all of a sudden things get real bad, real, real quick. And that's something to be cautious of. We don't have muskag. And then <laughs> the first time I experienced was in Kodiak and there was some reindeer that were bedded out in the flats. And so I'm crawling over like muskags and waders. And all of a sudden you go over like a rise and where it's kind of another flat and you'd already, I'd already been crawling across similar things, but then arms and head kind of go down in and I'd like back up and it's something I'm not experienced with. And, um, yeah, that was, (laughs) yeah. So I could see where, um, somebody could easily think, okay, this is, this is a good solid footing here and just step in and sink. Mm. Um, yeah, that's. That's kind of fun. It's kind of fun in a way. It doesn't seem too risky, but then again, has anybody ever fully submerged? (laughs) (laughs) I've I've fallen in a couple of times, you know, growing up as a kid around, you know, you always been running around there. I don't think anybody has gone in because the the ones that are going to sink the most, they're usually indicated by there's sitting water on top, uh, which you avoid, or the vegetation will be a really like um, a brighter green. So that stuff indicates a lot more water. So you just stay away from those areas and you're pretty good. You just kind of learn that just from, you know, growing up here, it just kind of sinks into your brain. And there are times when I have friends up here and I'm, I forget to tell them, Hey, you know, step on the edges. When we go around here, you're going to want to step on the roots and this and that. Um, but yeah, I don't know of anybody who's, who's gone in full, um, <laughs> up over the head, but I'm sure there's some spots where, where it's muddy and you probably could, but it would just be, uh, be ludicrous to even entertain stuff. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service 
online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For anyone who hates their phone bill, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. I was hesitant about having to get a new phone and a new phone number, but with Mint, you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone and your same phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Mint Mobile gives you the best rate whether you're buying for one or for a family, and at Mint, families start at two lines. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com/waypoint. That is mintmobile.com/waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash waypoint. Happy there. Yeah, because even like I went with my wife, you know, we were just there and we did a couple hikes and it was pancake flat across some muskaggy looking stuff. But yet there's a pool of water. And sometimes you look down in that pool and you're seeing four or five feet deep and you're standing on what's something that seemed like it was just flat. So, I mean, I could see where, yeah, it's just an obstacle. Yeah. Just a fun <laughs> terrain feature. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, the fun thing about going to different areas is just seeing how everything works together in the terrain. And I was amazed in Wyoming looking at some of these elk wallows where all of, there's nothing. There's no snow melt, you know, that you can see. I'm used to here. You look, you can look up, you can see where the, where the water is coming from. It's, it's that snow right there that's melting, that's creating all this stuff. Or, you know, the rain that kind of absorbs into the muskeg and then it kind of is, is moving its way down. But there you can't see where it's coming from because there is no snow and you think what how does this even happen but then it collects and you've got those those streams and so you have these really rich wallows and it can be super muddy and you can sink up to your you know your knee in some of these uh, these areas around it and it's sure. kind of muskeg ish uh at least a little bit um yeah, but it's like that yeah super interesting to kind of cool and, and and see those areas especially if if an elk has been there and you can smell them and think, Oh my gosh, where'd they go? Like, how can they hide in, in, in this, these are massive creatures and it is pretty thick. It's not as thick as here, but it's different. It's just fun to see these different terrains. Yeah. What part of Wyoming was that? Like generally speaking? Um, my wife was doing her work in Laramie. And so we spent a lot of time going up into the snowies. Um, okay. and then we hiked around in, uh, the big horns and also in the wind river range too. And so, We'd been around yeah. different different terrains, but um, we didn't see elk everywhere. But uh, some of those areas just kind of hike around looking for stuff, and um, it's pretty pretty cool to see that. And be, being able to walk through is such an interesting experience too. Like you can walk pretty much in any direction and not get tangled up in Devil's Club or anything like that. So it's, <laughs> a, it's so freeing to be able to walk around around there. Yeah, no, I could see that for sure. I've I've been to Wyoming one time for a hunt and it was elk, but it was more on the east side of the state. Hmm. And um, it was way more open than what you're describing and not as mountainous. But the elk are, yeah, there's a lot of elk. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot it, better than Oregon or anywhere else I've hunted. What's the, because you, you've hunted, uh, I was looking at some of your videos before. There was actually, I wanted to ask you about your Oregon mule deer hunt episode one from three years uh, ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, do you, why do you say, episode oh, one. yeah, like that? Because I've, I've told you too, like my my video, the first the first one's kind of uh, not as well put together, but um, but it was fun. It was an experience I had, and it was good for at that time. 
Yeah, I, I love, well, I don't love it, but looking back <laughs> and you cringe, but it's also that indication of how far you've come. And it, had you not put that one out there, who knows if you would have, you know, you put that right. first one out there and you get that, all that, the, the fear, insecurity, whatever it's out there, you get some positive feedback and then you look back later and you think, oh, that was horrible, but I'm so glad I did. Cause now I can look at what I've done now and I can, I can see how I've improved out of that with a lot of the stuff that I've, I've written. And there's some cringeworthy things that I wrote and I just think, oh my gosh, what, uh, it's just, it's not good, but it helps you redefine how you want to be in the creative space and what type of creative person you want to be. Um, is there something that has stuck out to you as far as like what you want to contribute um, to the creative space in the outdoors that's been refined as you've have gone on more hunts and filmed more, well, films <laughs> to be redundant? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. It's basically still been mostly um, how can I uh, – how can I incorporate the new things I've learned and something that was unique to me on this hunt or how I felt about this hunt into this film that now I'm going to edit and put out there for people to view and judge. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of generally where my thoughts have always been. But recently um, a couple different folks have asked um, like kind of friends have asked me like, where do you want to go with it? Or what do you, do you have any plans or long-term goals? And generally it's like, no, but the thing that I really want to do is start with um, my dad and interview, kind of do more of an interview film or a um, not necessarily how-to film, but talking about history of archery and some of his collection uh, within archery equipment and make it very short, like five minutes, maybe at top length of film and focus on things that like bring him joy and passion within what he does. And my dad's like a great first person to start with because he's acquired a lifetime of knowledge in archery. And that's something that I'm very passionate about too. It's how my hunts go. So start with interviewing folks that I care about and are friends and something that really makes them tick, like what they live for and how that involves the outdoors and weave it into a short little film and uh, kind of highlight their life. And so that's something that sounds fun, um, like a project I'd love to take on. But when would I have time to do that? <laughs> like my dad, he's, he's the one that I've, I've kind of initially thought about this project starting off with. And I told him about it like eight months ago and I just haven't done anything. Um, so yeah, finding the time, you know, of course, and then still doing objective number one, being a dad mm -hmm. <laughs> and being a husband. So, uh, yeah, it's tough to find time outside of that. And then of course, work in the full-time job, but that's kind of the, what I'd love to do. Like, you know, some more passion is to highlight people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's another thing that, that, that I liked, uh, and impressed me about when we were hanging out is that I didn't have much of a background about the, the shop or any of that. And so I was like, oh, this guy, Dave the guy's a cool dude. And I was like, oh, he's connected to the bow rack. And then that's connected to, oh, this guy's like, uh, there, there's something to his name, but he, you wouldn't, you wouldn't there's think that all these people that are somebody <laughs> and I'm just like, I know them. <laughs> yeah. It's, I know, it was, it was, it was cool. It was, it was refreshing that it, again, it wasn't like, uh, you get to hang out with me. I, I am Nathan Endicott. I am, you know, it was really cool to kind of see that and 
when you talked about your priorities and what your jobs are, I think that's a reflection of that is your dad and husband, number one, and some of my other contacts in the industry and, and, and friends, when they have those priorities, right? I think it just, it perve- it permeates through everything else. And so you get the feeling, even in the, it comes out in the films that this is about story and this is passion. This isn't the number one thing here is to market something is to get big is to make it for my name. Cause this is, this is number three or four on the list. I really love to do it. I'm going to put forth time into it, but this is in addition to everything else I'm doing, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And then I would say to build on that, the only catch to it all is that when we're in the outdoor space and we're providing content and you're a writer, um, it's like you hear, you hear narratives that are out there that aren't necessarily aligning with what you believe or you find as a core value, but yet it's not necessarily wrong. You've, you've wrote that. Um, it's just different. And, but yet if you did nothing about that, if you just thought there's all these different views and I don't necessarily align with them. Um, and you just sat there without putting any effort in to sharing your vision and your views, then you would have done nothing. Like it's, it's, purposeless why, why even have a view at all so it's like you have this different view and you're sharing it how well nobody's gonna see it unless you get it out there so how do you get it out there well you have to like almost play the same game that the people that are doing really well with maybe the narrative you don't agree with mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of the other if i bookend my response about the social media it's that if i did not participate because it doesn't align with my core values which is just being a family guy that likes to hunt, then I would otherwise just, you know, let, let this other narrative exist and not ever provide. You're just kind of complaining about something. You're not doing anything about it. And so I want to be known for what I'm for. So I participate almost like in this game of social media so that I could still share what I believe in and encourage what I believe in. And so that that's hopefully captured too in my films. Like I always try to have some home video aspect to it. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not always just like putting out the film that looks like the most professional thing. It's, it's how I thought about it. And yeah, so I don't know if that response made sense, but, um, but yeah, you, I mean, in order for your book to be sold and for your opinions to be heard, you have to market yourself Mm -hmm. as a human in some way or else it's just going to sit on a shelf. And so it's kind of a weird thing to um, get yourself out there. And, and it's hard for some people. It's definitely me. I'm not one to, really want to get my name out there and not uh and then try to sound like somebody because i have nothing to prove mm-hmm. i'm very content yeah. <laughs> i feel like i've lived a great life already at this point and like i'm just really happy everything's a benefit after that yeah <laughs> like and just you know taking care of um home base so yeah i think playing the games on your own terms is really important and there's some stuff that's out there that you might not agree with but and some people then adopt that as their persona they're the ones who are going to tell it like it is it's, well Right. I mean, there's some stuff you don't agree with. Doesn't mean that it's, that it's bad, but you know, you don't hunters, we should definitely stick together. We shouldn't just put a rubber stamp on everything and say, you know, no matter what you do, there's, you know, everything's okay. Cause I don't think we can really afford to antagonize anti hunters. Um, and I think with one of the most important parts of growth is to be self-aware and to be reflective. So that stuff is important too. Um, so we can reflect and we can have conversations, uh, but do it in a way that's going to be, be meaningful and, and purposeful. Cause that's like it or not, that's where we're at. We're going to have to deal with it. So putting out good, honest content out there and, 
you know, not be uh, to this or to that, I think is an important thing going forward. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So what do you got, uh, what do you got coming up? When's the next, uh, um, shed hunting and how do you, do you know where all these deer are? Cause I've, I've seen some of your films. You just go back to where you hunted and then they drop the antlers and you're getting like four or five sheds per trip. You're getting one or two sheds per trip. Well, how, how's that working out for you? Yeah, I think the best has been like three on a trip, three sheds. And then where I'm going, I'm picking new spots. I'm picking areas that I don't hunt and where I never go. There's one day I went to an area where I hunted one time and I found a couple of sheds there, which is cool, but it's very tough. I mean, there's not a ton of deer. My, again, my film makes it look like there's a ton of deer, <laughs> but I'm just finding where the deer are at. Like there's so much, pro- there's so much real estate to cover. And that's again, like the nice thing about your Alaska Southeast is that when you're up above in the Alpine, you can at least see what the animals are. Cause for a short period of time, that's where they're all at. Mm-hmm. And so you can at least make inventory of this is a good spot. You can scout more effectively that way. So that's kind of what I'm doing is that I've, I've narrowed it down. I know where the deer like to live at different times of the year. I know where they like to drop their antler. You can spend, you can hike, you know, 30 miles zigzag all over everywhere and not find a shed. And then you can go and, and put in about two miles and zigzag one small little section of hillside and find two or three. Mm -hmm. I mean, they like very specific spots because this helps them survive the winter and they're brutal. So, um, and that's like that all over the West for a blacktail. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just narrowing it down to very, very specific types of terrain. And I look for it on Google earth and I find it and then, uh, basically drop a pin and then go zigzag that hillside and find them. Hmm. I've never gone shed hunting. I've only picked up sheds that I have found while I've been outside. <laughs> I think if I yeah. went out with the mission of finding sheds, I never would find one. There are a couple of times where I found sheds and it gets in the back of my head because I think, all right, once the weather pushes them down, they're going to be in kind of that lowland muskeg area. But I found a, um, like a pair, which was really awesome. It was a nice pair, like way higher on the mountain than I expected. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh man, this kind of jacks me up because I was hunting the, the lower area and I thought, all right, well, maybe they, he, he, he goes up and then he comes back down or maybe he came down for the rut and then went back, uh, back up there. But there had been quite a bit of snow. So how is this happening? And then I saw that there was like a, there's a way that he probably could have gotten down from the lowland muskegs um, up that was pretty protected and probably didn't get a whole lot of snow. But then when I was figuring out where I wanted to hunt, that just stuck in the back of my head because all the places that I usually like to hunt hunt for rut were different. I thought, man, I, up there, I, I need to go up there. And it just, it just threw me. And I, I thought I had a good program figured out. I thought I had some good rut areas and, you know, I killed some, some nice bucks in rut area in the, the lower muskeg areas, but I just threw a whole wrench in, uh, what I thought I'd figured out. And that's kind of the, it's kind of a cool thing to just be back at, it's not square one, but just to be reminded Always that, learning. Hey, yeah, the, the deer do what the deer do. And, you know, as yeah. soon as you feel like you've got something figured out, you're going to realize that you don't. Yep. So yeah, that, leads to a lot of different thoughts I've had about Southeast and being there and seeing it and noticing some of the old growth that you guys have and well, what elevation band, I think it was around 1500 feet, maybe 2000 feet. There's some typically like some old growth timber in that stretch and on a steep South face where you have that old growth timber, 
Um, you're going to get a lot of sunlight hit the ground and maybe the right type of feed. I'm not sure. It didn't look like what I have in my mountain range, but that would help a buck, an old buck mm -hmm. survive. And, and I've found that the older the buck is, they're going to want to live as high as possible on, on the mountain, even if that means they're on two feet, three feet of snow. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just the way it is. Uh, they'll be as high as absolutely possible. So when you transition out of that environment and you're, you're coming out of the cascade range, uh, that's kind of what I hunt mostly is up in the cascade range of Oregon. Um, and you're down in the Valley. Yeah. These deer behave differently. They, they might drop in what would be like the muskag flats of Southeast is that, um, we have valleys and they don't have to migrate. Mm -hmm. They can live wherever they want and they might drop. So it's almost relatable is that if you don't have the right habitat, but there's deer, there's a population in that spot they don't have the right hillside, they don't have the right, you know, everything, then maybe they'll be down on the coastline or down, mm -hmm. you know, that's where they're going to win or that's where they're going to drop. But an old buck that's maybe in the right hillside, he's going to be as high as possible. Mm -hmm. um, it just tends to be the case. Yeah. That's been the, the, one of the biggest issues or not issues, I guess, but, um, when, when people come up here, they, they're asking about the migration corridor. I'm like, this is an Island here. Like they don't have to, they can live their entire life. And there's always people who shoot really, really big bucks in August, uh, near the ocean, just because bucks don't have to be up top if they don't want to. Like you said, if you big old, uh, swamp donkey, that's just kind of hanging out low in the, in the muskeg has food, has cover, has everything it needs. It doesn't have to go up to the mountains. There's no rule that says it. And these, you know, these mountains are, you're going from sea level to maybe 3000 feet. But, uh, like you said, to, in order to get to that subalpine, it's, it's not very far. They can make that trip pretty easily. And so you're getting a lot of, uh, variety in there in the, in the, uh, the edge of those muskegs has a lot of that great feed for it. Cause it gets a ton of sun and it gives them really, really thick cover. And so if you're walking through the muskeg, that can be just totally hidden in there and they can shoot out the back end of the timber and, yeah. into the old, and you'll just never see them. So it's, it's pretty cool to learn all that and see that and, and just, figure it out and yeah just a lot of fun get really excited for it yeah. so it's fun to see that uh in the different uh, time of year and then figure that out before everything gets all bushy and leavy and whatnot yeah another thing too that it reminds me of is that where i'm finding my blacktail wintering is that it's it's pretty effective for them to escape from predators um and it's what predators are they adapted from so mostly mountain lion and but up there uh you have wolves as well wolves kind of like maybe not a steep side slope so maybe if i had to just throw out something random i would feel that areas where the wolves are not there that year or they've moved on or different islands or populations have changed maybe those deer do like the flats the more muskaggy flats for wintering because it's not as much effort to survive winter mm -hmm. um it's warmer but uh, maybe they have to get pushed up into more of the steep terrain or mountainous stuff to survive winter. If there are a lot of wolves, maybe it's easier to elude them because they can run downhill or get away from them faster versus being caught up in muskag. I have no idea, but <laughs> predators seem to play a, you know, a piece of that puzzle, um, for where they winter. And then, and then for me, it's tracing too. where's a buck wintering. So if I find some sheds, I could trace it pretty, pretty quickly to where they're rutting. It's not mm -hmm. that far. You mentioned migration corridor. We don't really have migrating blacktail, but we have deer that get pushed because of mm, snow. Yeah. They're not they're not mule deer migration routes, 10, 20, 30 miles. We're talking at the most six miles um, for blacktail to, to migrate or winter. Um, and then so I could trace back not too far away to where those bucks might be rutting. 
It's, and also I'm seeing shit. I'm seeing rubs. So mm. when I'm picking up a shed, I'll look up and I'll see a rub. And I'm like, well, this is probably a pretty good spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just have to drop a pin. And then it's covering all those spots in a day as many miles as you could put in and find out where the deer are hanging out. Yeah. Do you put many game cameras out? I don't like to put out game cameras because uh, I don't really want people to know that it's like a hunting spot or have mm. the capability to steal that camera or look at the card. So uh, I'll do it for elk or something where it's a really long to go scout. It takes a day's worth of travel um, across the opposite side of the state. That's where I'll use a game camera because it's worth the risk. But when it's close to home, I mean, I could put in enough trips to justify the use of a camera. The other thing that's nice about a camera is you really see when the deer are most active. So it's like, when did the rut really happen that year? Well, you look at your camera and you can tell that. So I might put up one and I'll put up one camera in a spot where I feel like it's pretty well hidden. I'll hide the camera, hide it high. And that's just really, I know a lot of deer use the spot and I'll just, that'll help me track when they rut. But I don't need to put a camera on every spot I think is good. Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm trying to find the biggest deer that lives out there. I'm just trying to find out when the timing is the best. And, um, that's really it. Yeah. yeah. I put some out in some areas that were a lot of rubs. Cause I, I just hunted a couple of the areas and hunted from different angles. And so I, I, I went up the easiest access accessible spot. And the next time I thought, well, I'm seeing fresh rubs, but I didn't see anything and it's pretty thick. And I called nothing happened. So I accessed it from a different way just to seeing if, if they're used to people coming up this spur, then maybe they won't be used for, uh, used to someone dropping in from this angle. So I tried different angles I thought, man, there's, there's fresh rubs and then more fresh rubs. Like they have to be around here. And I put out a game camera and saw that they were primarily moving more like one or two in the morning. I thought, oh, great. So I didn't know if that was like an, a, that's normally what the program that they were running, or if it was because of increased pressure, it wasn't a really difficult place to get to. And so I'm sure a lot of people were, were parking and were walking up this spur and seeing the same thing. Uh, so that may have kind of, kind of driven them to, to run a more, uh, safe night program, but also, you know, some of those areas are so thick and if they're not coming to a call and if so many people have been calling them, you know, they, that the instinct to show up maybe has been replaced by, Hey man, the last time that I responded to one of these sounds, there was some dude there and I don't like that. And so, uh, I have seen, um, uh, deer running the opposite direction of where someone was calling. So I didn't know if they got too close and, and spooked or if they were like, Hey man, I don't, I don't like that sound anymore. But, um, yeah. How do you deal with, uh, areas that might be more pressure? Do you not hunt the area? Do you hunt it from a different angle? Do you think what a lazy person would do and do the opposite? What do you, what do you do with that? Oh, wow. Um, big question kind of, but well, so first too, is that like game cameras, the use of game cameras, it could tell a story. And you could buy into that story way more than it's worth. Right. So it's like, if you see, yeah, you could see that deer all moving at a certain, like it's all at night. Well, maybe it's only at night in that spot because mm. they're just using it at night to travel to where they want to feed in the day. You're just seeing a small, small piece of the real story. So um, it, they're effective. They can be used to help. Like if you had a bait site, you would know exactly the end of the story because that's what you want to see them at. Mm -hmm. So the use of cameras I think you got to put a lot of thought and strategy into it if you're really going to tell yourself a story from it. Otherwise, it's just giving you information and that may not be the most valuable information. Um, it's like listening to a hunting buddy that doesn't really know what he's talking about. <laughs> you're just like, you take like the you take it for what it's worth. So that's the same way. Um, 
you take the trail camera for what it's worth. Uh, all right. So pressured areas. Like I just watched a Western hunter episode with Nate Simmons and he's hunting, uh, his home state, Wyoming for, for mule deer. And he gets into a spot and he sees one hunter, it blows out a basin and he's like, dang it. You know, I didn't plan to leave already, but I'll go talk to him. So he goes and talks to him. He's like, Oh, nice guy. He's going to hunt over here. I'll hunt here. We'll maintain that point of separation. We're talking about giant places, huge places. Like he saw 10 or 15 mule deer bucks in the wide open. It's like, Hmm. shoot one guy to contend with. Like that's nothing. Like, and then, um, and then here comes guy number two and he just packs up and left and he goes to another area and then you see in more people there and he thought it was the most remote thing. So again, it kind of ended with him packing up and leaving out of a little bit of frustration. And so I see where guys, um, pay a lot of attention to hunting pressure. And of course, I don't want to park at the same trailhead or same spot as where someone else's vehicle is. I, I, I avoid that, of course. But in the on the West, when you have a lot of timber, you're not seeing other people. You know, you can stand the chance of um, of hunting pretty hard and not really seeing that other person all day. So does hunting pressure play a role? Probably. But if, if you're willing to put in the miles and the work, it's it's not going to affect it. Maybe it helps you. Maybe it pushes the deer towards you. Who knows? It's a lots of variables, but I won't, I won't shy away from it. I'm out there to hunt just as much as anybody else is. Now there's probably a limit if there's like 10 trucks. I'm like, okay, time to pick a totally different area code. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've transitioned or not transitioned, but I've I've taken some lessons from fly fishing where I've seen some people that are fishing for steelhead on a river, but they're not getting the fly where it needs to be. And so I will wait for them to finish and then I'll drop in and I'll fish it, you know, correctly, or just based on the knowledge that I have of where the fish are going to sit, I can then fish that and I can, I can usually get a fish or two. And so when I apply that to, to hunting, it makes a lot of sense because just because someone's in the area doesn't mean that they're hunting it right or that it's blown out or that it's ruined. Um, and that's, again, you know, we've talked about knowing and understanding what the terrain is and being in there and, and figuring all those things out and putting those pieces together, um, plays in. So I think I've become much better about not just abandoning a spot because someone else is there, um, hunting it well in my own terms and, you know, Hey, I know that there's a buck in here. And so let's, let's just make sure that we're, we're pretty sharp, uh, make sure that we're doing things correctly. And then if nothing happens, nothing happens, but at least again, hunting it on my own terms, I think is, is something that, uh, it's been a mature, uh, or a, a maturation process uh, for me as a hunter to to not just go to the only spot where I can be by myself. Yeah, I agree with that. It's the only other variable to all of it is does somebody else follow your boot prints in the snow? <laughs> <laughs> and I hate I hate to say it, but that does happen. And um, I just always hope that people will try to honor, um, you know, not trying to tr- literally trail uh, somebody else. But I could, I mean, there's no rule saying they can't. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, just feel it's... like it's one of those ethics and respect things is like if, if you happen upon or see somebody, maybe just make contact and go the other way versus trying to literally go right where they're going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that desperation and that, that can, I can t- tie in if someone is really uh, excited for getting something or they're the only person who hasn't shot anything or if, you know, out of state and they only have a limited amount of time. Um, and then different, 
you know, if you're from a different state and that's just kind of what you do, you do deer drives or this person spooks it there, you know, maybe that's just part of the program. They don't see anything wrong with it. It's yeah. just a different, you know, the, the program, the non-resident versus resident program oftentimes can be uh, quite different. Yep. And I've been in those same shoes. So while I complain maybe about someone following my boot prints, I've been, I've been that person to somebody else in a different way that they hunt. You know, it's like they hunt a different terrain. They see me period. It might violate their personal ethic. And so, yeah, just being conscious of that and knowing where you go um, is probably good word of wisdom, but yeah. So pressure, hunting pressure, doesn't really bother me too much. Um, I know guys that get it done every single year in the same spots I hunt and they're hunting muzzleloader, like before I even get there or rifle before I even get there, archery is the last is a late hunt. And then I'm still finding good bucks. And it, again, it's like, your, your, your fly fishing example is great. You're going to, you're going to fish the hole and from experience be able to nail them where somebody else can go through the same country and not, not nail it, not figure it out. And, um, and that's going to be up to them to learn and to grow. Um, and then I can still have my experience that's out there in a similar place. Don't have to shy away from hunting where I like to hunt. If other people are there. What dictates whether or not you hunt the same spot? Do you do you hunt the same spot year in, year out, or do you try to go to a new spot? Because there's always that chance of, I'm going to try a new spot this year, and then think, gosh dang it, why did I do this new spot when I know where the deer are? I could just hunt that spot, and I have a better chance of success. Uh, yeah. I have favorites, like not because it's better, just because you know it so well, or... It just, you've had so many good memories there. So you're just like a repeat customer. You want to go back and hunt something. Um, and how long but, is your season? That, that makes a big difference too. How long is you have like uh, a month long season or? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, four weekends, three weeks, um, with, uh, the four weekends and yeah, it's not very long. Um, I guess it's, it's, I guess if you compare it to some, um, so like Washington has a shorter season, Oregon's kind of middle of the road, California has a longer season, and of course, Alaska has a longer season. So it's, yeah, it's, I guess it's lower if we're comparing to Alaska mm-hmm. for time period, but we're going after one deer as opposed to yeah. three or four. Uh, yeah. Um, but picking new spots, I mean, I've, there's so many spots it's, and even that I've, got pins it's just a smear of pins all over um giant range of you know half the state really i've covered three quarters of the state and i'm bouncing around all the time um you know i'll i'll be one spot one day and then 20 miles 30 miles away the next day and just hit as many spots as possible and then of course after about a week or so i'll loop back and maybe check out an original spot that i just love and i can't ever quit it (laughs) and i just hunt it so hard and it's effective for me and it might not even be worth it, but I just, I just like to return to it. Yeah. It's like having a home game as much as it can yeah. be when it's not your home. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So what else you got this summer? What, uh, their non hunting, uh, related stuff. I know you got uh, baby number four on the way. Oh uh, yeah. Um, right now the non hunting stuff is that just every opportunity we can get the kids out. We're doing swim lessons, taking them to the local lake and just being outside took, I took my son hiking last weekend. He's been talking about going hiking every single day. And so, um, I took him on a little hike. He did great. He's three and a half and he hiked 
uh, two miles. Um, it was uh, an old, old grade, so it was not too hard. He had to, lots of brush. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the non-hunting stuff is maybe a few camping trips here and there. Um, a couple more shed hunting trips with some buddies. But I want to do a fishing trip or two in the Cascades, but we're getting too close to mosquito season. Snow hasn't melted out enough to get into those high lakes. Uh, yeah, and then, I mean, after that, it's really just switching into full scouting mode. And I want to do a California blacktail hunt. And I'm going to go down there and scout. Uh, that's probably in three to four weeks. I'm going to do a spring bear hunt in Idaho still and like a week and a half to two weeks uh, with a buddy. And then it'll be close to August and September, the normal stuff. And then the babies do uh, end of September. Nice. So, yeah, the gas re- gas really gets going this time of year. We got um, spring bear is, is kind of tapering off. It ends at the uh, end of June, but uh, – mm-hmm. Abby and I are headed north to do some trout fishing in the interior, which will be a lot of fun. We're taking our pack rafts up, can do a couple little floats, and then uh, see some friends up there, and then uh, come back. And it's going to be king salmon, halibut, shrimp, all that stuff, and it just goes yeah. so fast, so fast. Yeah, short windows, but some pretty cool. Um, so, are you all done? Spring, spring bears winding down, but you're kind of already switching gears. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. May is kind of the time to, to really get after it because once uh, the Kings start showing up, it's King salmon. You just want to put that fish up because that's really limited and that's, you know, definitely treasure King salmon and, and the silvers start showing up in August and, or uh, July and August. So just want to really put uh, all that fish up and spend as much time as we can over there. And then uh, I think maybe August or September, if, if we happen to get a couple, a couple deer, Abby wants to get a mountain goat and then, um, I don't know, best case scenario, we get a couple deer, Abby gets a mountain goat, and then we can go after, a, a, a black bear in the, in the Alpine if they've been eating the berries. So, um, I mean, those, that's yeah. just the, if everything goes absolutely perfectly and, you know, but who knows, it's a great plan to have. And most of the time you make a plan and something else happens and it ends up being just as good, if not better than what you had planned. So it's all right. Yeah. What's your prime? So like, uh, putting up King salmon, you said, um, like how many pounds of King salmon are you able to get in your annual, you know, um, trips or is it like, what's your ratio of fish to, Mm. to bear deer, like (laughs) goat and do you like goat? Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. We, uh, we just ground all of it. We didn't do, uh, well, we had uh, tenderloin of, of course, and, and the backstrap, but, uh, just ground everything else. We didn't do roasts or anything like that, but it's really good and chili or you know, anything that you would use ground for. Um, but, um, we try to get as much as, as possible last year we were building a house and didn't have the boat. So it was whenever we were invited. And then also we had, uh, we were on Prince of Wales. So we got a couple Kings, but mm. it's, it's hard to not just eat the fresh fish because King's got a lot of that, uh, the really good omega fats in there, which means that the fat kind of deteriorates and breaks down in the freezer. So, uh, frozen King fillets aren't nearly as good because the fatty content. So it's way better to just either, uh, jar those or eat them fresh. And so, you know, there's, you know, ideally you just kind of catch and eat the Kings until you've had enough and then, uh, you know, jar them. That's kind of the way to go with that. And then, um, silvers when they start showing up, maybe have more of those fillets in there because we might like making uh or making fish cakes so uh, ritz crackers and uh the fish and um some couple eggs and some peppers and whatnot just make these nice little little cakes 
Um, so that's kind of the favorite thing to do with the, with the coho, but, um, and then two, three, four or so deer and maybe a mountain goat last year, we threw a caribou in there. So it's just kind of whatever we can get. And it's, it's pretty fun. It's just, you know, grab something out of the freezer. What is it? Now it's ground goat it's <laughs> caribou. So last year was a pretty good year. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I don't have the quite the diversity of of uh, meat um, like you do. So that's we, we're like, should we have elk or deer? <laughs> man, it's hard to ever pass up elk. Abby got an elk yeah. when she was down in Wyoming, and man, that stuff's it's you get so much of, it, you just never get tired of it. Yeah, I did. I have actually for my in laws. I've made them samplers. I go. I'm like, all right. This black tail is from the valley. This black tail is from the high country. This mule deer is from Arizona. And this elk is from Oregon. It, it, well, I'll, I'll tell them that, but not tell them like what the cut is or where it's from and to cook it all the same, present it to them like a sample one, two, three, four, and say, which one's your favorite. And then after they eat it, then I would say, okay, that is blacktail or like that is mule deer. Usually the Arizona mule deer wins oh, like, really? something about, yeah, the desert mule deer, uh, just tastes so good. And I agree. Mm. It's my favorite. It tastes like candy to me. Uh, compared to like blacktail kind of tasting more of a, yeah, it's more meaty, um, and flavor, uh, more earthy almost like mm. it's hard to compare it. Whereas one just is so rich and sweet and then elk's kind of like the, the center. It's like, it doesn't, it's not on one extreme or the other, as far as like being like this rich flavor or kind of this earthier taste to it. And I prep all my meat very similar. Like I am meticulous, keep everything super clean. I process right away, get it cooled down and frozen, and I don't let anything age. I know that's a method, and I know that probably tastes really good. I just treat it all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was that's my diversity of meat, which I wish I did more fishing. And that's mm-hmm. what I, I want, you know, eventually I'll make another trip up and uh, another fishing trip and with my uh, dad's buddy, Dwayne, um, on Prince of Wales at that fish camp, but not this year. Yeah. This year we we lucked out and we we got we got the full experience and in, in shrimping. Yeah, really glad you're able to make it up there. That was uh that was fun to watch you pull the pots to, to <laughs> give me a break. That's something. I don't know though. how that that could actually be the only deterrent to shrimping more is pulling the pot. But I was thinking about like a, a hand crank and how I would do it. Like I put a little bit of thought into it. Um, <laughs> Well, once I get, uh, I got a, uh, a bracket, I got to get, uh, put in there and then I'll have my, uh, pot puller back on there. So it'll just be, uh, it'll be super easy, but, uh, I had another, um, just like a little wheel. And so if you put the rope on the wheel, like it just, there's a lot less friction. And so it's uh, yes. so, so much easier, but I don't have the mount for that. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's nice to go that out there, fun. quick little trip and, uh, and, yeah. um, yeah, so when we get back, we got to really start doing some some shrimping. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a good time. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on here, man. Always great to talk to you. And um, yeah, you too. yeah, we'll uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds good.